Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiana Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around fashion and product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! Attention all product gurus. Want to take your game to the next level? Then a PLA membership is just the thing you need. With over 50 templates available from product analytics tracking to value proposition and churn prediction, there's a template for everything. We also offer exclusive articles from industry leaders like Adobe, Google, and Amazon. And with access to over 350 hours of expert presentations, our membership plans have it all. Plus, you can enjoy virtual events, discounts on in-person summits and courses, and new offerings added every month. To become a member and access your one-stop shop for all things product-led, just click on the blue membership button at the top of your screen. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled to have with us today, Naomi Gleit. And Naomi, you are uh, Zooming in, I believe, from New York today. Is that correct? Yes, from the West Village. (laughs) Lovely, lovely. And uh, for those of you who don't know her name, uh, Naomi is the head of product at Meta and is responsible for leading a lot of work across several teams, um, all in support of foundational products that cross all the different Meta apps. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Uh, And we're going to start, though, with saying thanks and welcome to the show, Naomi. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Truly, I am so glad we connected on LinkedIn and now we're here. Hi, I'm very glad too. And for those of you who are, are curious about that, I actually saw Naomi speaking at a women in product event and thought it, she was really powerful and that her message would um, find a lot of excited ears in our listeners uh, group. So we're excited to have her here today and talking to our audience. All right. So Naomi, let's first start with what do we mean when we say you are working on foundational products that uh, go across the different meta apps? It's a great question because when I joined, there was only one product. It was www.thefacebook.com. Over time, our products and services have obviously expanded. We have Facebook, we have Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, and obviously we have a lot of investments in reality labs around augmented and virtual reality. And instead of reinventing the wheel every single time to build systems around growth, safety and security, social impact tools, monetization services, we try to centralize those solutions or foundations in an org like mine so that we can help all of these um, apps and devices instead of having them start from the beginning, start from scratch each time. So a great example is... um, We are working on charitable giving tools that we built in Facebook. It would be great if you could donate to charities on Instagram as well. And so we would, we would build that product and have it support, be supported by Facebook and Instagram. Makes perfect sense. Um, I'm curious about when that kind of architectural choice came about. Obviously, as you said, you started out as a website. Most of us understand that website, although maybe the younger ones only know it as an app these days. But um, when did you guys decide, hey, we're going to build for infrastructure, right, across these different apps and these different brands? Was that something that came later in um, the acquisition and growth strategy, or was it pretty intentional from the beginning? I would say it came later in the acquisition strat, you know, post, post acquisition. We were all building on Facebook. The whole company was 
worked at Facebook with the acquisition of Instagram. There were only 13 people working at Instagram when we acquired it. I think that was 2008. Um, and they had a lot of the same challenges that we had in building Facebook. You mentioned infrastructure. Great point. With 13 people, they were not able to support the infrastructure required for (laughs) the user base, which was rapidly growing. And so we realized, hey, this is a great thing that we can help Instagram with. If we are building an advertising system that works on Facebook, how can we serve the best personalized ads on Instagram as well? And so I would say as the portfolio expanded, we realized that we could get a lot of economies of scale and best-in-class expertise by having these central teams. So if you think about the apps maybe as verticals, I would think about the teams that I work on as horizontals that work across the verticals. Makes perfect sense. Okay, so Naomi, your LinkedIn is like one of my favorites. I feel like so many uh, profiles, it's like a thousand, and I'm even guilty of this, a thousand different job descriptions and roles and (laughs) stops along the way. And you are just like, I'm here, I'm me, I'm clear, I've been at Facebook, I've been here for 17 years, right? And it's just simple. I want to know behind that. Take me back. Like, what's the story? Uh, uh, you know, give me give me a little bit about what's not on the front cover there. Well, um, I think my past self would never have imagined that my future self would be where I am today, for sure. I kind of fell into it, um, but at the same time, I had a lot of conviction about it. I went to um, Stanford. I studied science, technology, and society. It was a totally new major at that time. There was... Similar programs at other colleges, at Harvard, it was called History of Science. It's more of an anthropology or sociology of how technology evolves, how it changes the way people interact. How did the printing press, you know, impact how communication works? And I'm sure you'd be super interested in this, too. That's just something I found incredibly fascinating. At that time, 2005, Facebook had just come to Stanford campus. This is like really dating myself, but Facebook was really only like a very small website that only a few colleges had. And I know it's hard to imagine now that there's 3 billion people who use our our services. Back in the day, it was only a, a, a couple colleges. And so I was one of the first people to use it. And I was really interested in it as both like a college student. It was basically the digital version of the physical Facebook. They used to pass out a a booklet, a pamphlet with all of the photos of the people in your year. Do you remember this? I don't know. <laughs> okay, exactly. So all that the website was, was a name and a profile picture. But people were like obsessed with it, including myself. And I was also obsessed with it from an academic perspective. I just had a conviction that this is going to be really important At that time, there was something called Club Nexus, which was sort of like an early Facebook um, that was specific to Stanford. And my thesis was evaluating why I thought Club Nexus would not be successful and why I thought Facebook would be successful. And that was not a grand, you know, a given. I think at that time, if you remember, there was like MySpace, Friendster. It just wasn't clear that this whole social media or social networking thing was really going to take off. And when I like through the process of writing that, I wanted to work there when I graduated. I actually got an offer from LinkedIn and Facebook and I chose Facebook. And um I guess sort of the, the rest is history. Cheryl has the saying, if you're getting on a rocket ship, don't ask what seat. 
And um, here we are 17 years later. And a lot of people are often like, what, what are you, I mean, what have I been doing for 17 years? I feel like I've had so many different jobs in that time. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about all of those dis- different experiences. Um, but it's definitely been a wild rocket ship. I love that. And I think we definitely should go into some of those, some of those points. I mean, we'll want to hear some high points, but I also think it's really interesting to hear some of the low points. And, you know, one of the ones that you and I talked about when kind of prepping was your guys' experimentation and uh, entry into mobile. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that was like and where that was in your journey. Absolutely. And To your point, there has definitely been a lot of low points and a lot of high points. And I think in general, what I have learned is you are never sort of as bad as they it seems and you're never as good as they seem either. Um, And so I've tried to modulate a little bit, not over rotate in either direction. I was actually just telling a team yesterday because I think things are tough, you know, now as well that. When we first launched Newsfeed, there was such a revolt and backlash of people using the site at that time that we had to put security guards to guard the office because there was protesters outside. It's funny now, but I think at the time, it's just there have been a lot of lows is is what I'm saying. This is not the first hard thing that we've, we've had to do. One of the other hard times was the shift to mobile. And I think it's really well documented that we were pretty late on that. We were really focused on web development. www.thefacebook.com became facebook.com. We were adding new features. It was a profile picture and a name. We added photos. We added the ability to write on people's walls. We added groups. We added events. One of the other things that we did was add a messaging system. So you were able to message other people on the site. Most people don't remember this, but it was a web first, almost like an email client. It looked a little bit like Outlook. You could like message your friend, add an attachment, you could like include an image. And just around that time, this was like 2012, 2013, there was this huge shift to, to mobile. Like we were, we were still building for college students who were at their computers all day and The infamous story is Mark was like, you know, guys, this trend is happening. We are behind. We don't even have a mobile app, a mobile experience. I'm not going to talk to anybody who doesn't bring in a prototype that's not, you know, based on web. It has to be based on mobile. So the lore is that he like kicked people out of his room if they were coming in with like web prototypes and web mocks instead of mobile prototypes and and mobile mocks. That just gives you a sense of like how we really had to pivot. It's like all of a sudden the mobile team that was like a small team that became the whole company became the mobile team. Um, And One of the things that I was working on is how do we, you know, all of a sudden everyone had like a phone in their pocket and was texting. And, you know, I was using iMessage at the time, I think. um, And that was like really easy and simple. It was like one function, one icon on your home screen. You clicked on it. You texted someone. And because they also had a phone in their pocket, they responded immediately. Very different than email, which is like a 24-hour response time, adding a time, not adding attachments. I'm not trying to, you know, include all kinds of rich media. I'm just saying, hey, you hear and someone would respond. We had to take that product and make it 
a mobile first SMS like mobile to mobile messaging system. So what we had sort of gone down this road of like something more interoperable across email, um, we had to now convert into this single use mobile to mobile, very responsive um, product. And that required a lockdown. <laughs> we took the team, we went into a room, we were like, how can we completely reimagine this? And we built what was at the time we called Messenger 3.0. And so Messenger 1.0, Messenger 2.0 were really web focused. And here for the first time we were building this, this app. We did face a really important challenge. It was a messaging system that was inside of the Facebook app. And like I mentioned, there's so many different features and functionality of the Facebook app. So if I go there, I have like 10 notifications of which one is maybe a message response and I wouldn't see it. There was just so much going on in the Facebook app. In order to have like a truly great mobile to mobile experience, we had to have a single use case there that we did really well. And that led to creating the Messenger app. And today we know this as Facebook Messenger. But the process of getting millions of people to download a separate app that was only focused on Messenger, talk about backlash. (laughs) All of a sudden, everyone's messages on Facebook were in a different application. And we felt like this was really necessary in order to make it a great messaging system rather than, you know, one of 10 things that you could do in a much more fully featured message, uh, Facebook app. Um, so during that time, I think there was a lot of user feedback. We don't want to download this new app. Why are my messages no longer here? Why are you fast app switching to from Facebook to Messenger? And um, I would say, though, you know, with hindsight, um, that has really significantly increased the utility and adoption of Facebook messaging in general. So that whole process sounds, uh, you know, to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is really responsible for the strategy or responsible for executing the strategy, it sounds really intimidating and it sounds like it could be quite scary in the moment. Um, you obviously have the benefit of, you know, looking back at this with time and perspective, but, you know, where were you in your own leadership journey at that time and what, what was it like for you? Um, and, you know, I think that helps other people understand when they feel like they're in the middle of a storm, right? Um, what they can learn from that. Yeah, it's such a great question. I think one of the hardest things for me is oftentimes when you're trying to do a pivot, you also need to not just pivot the team, but sometimes you need to change the team. And so obviously that is is very difficult. Like, you know, the skill set that we might need for building a mobile messaging product might be different than the skill set we need for building a web-based email client. And and that part has always, you know, sort of been hard. The other thing is, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, criticism is really, really, really important and good. And so obviously we want to listen to user feedback. I would sort of separate criticism into two buckets. Criticism that's sort of intended, and Mark has has talked about this too, as someone I think who's been (laughs) highly criticized, um, just gets a lot of feedback. We love feedback, but I think there's feedback given in good faith and feedback that's given sort of in, in bad faith. And it's really important to be able to isolate the feedback sort of given in good faith that, you know, people are really trying to improve the product highlight things that we're not seeing, contribute to the product development process versus sort of maybe just 
people that just are not going to like it no, no matter what. Um, and so I think separating out like the signal, I think a little bit from the noise, what should we really respond to? How do we need to adapt and evolve based on feedback um, is also just sort of a hard skill when it just seems like blanket criticism. <laughs> Um, but you know, like we've, we've done a lot of different, the hard things I talked earlier about, like launching newsfeed. I think if we were to take away newsfeed today, there might be protests outside because this is a feature that people really want. And similarly, I think, you know, we have hundreds of millions of people using Facebook Messenger today. I think if we were to potentially, you know, kill that app or move it back into the Facebook app, that would also be very upsetting. Yeah, it's funny because as you were describing um, describing the uh, revolt uh, that you had had from launching those features, Newsfeed, um, I went back and I just Google searched and I found <laughs> I found a TechCrunch article from it. It's like really, I mean, I this I I missed this at the time, but like seeing that there was actually sites for boycotting this and like you're right, it was really intense this backlash, um, which a is interesting, but I I think if I try to parse out what you're saying about your lessons from, you know, launching Messenger and then, of course, with Newsfeed is that anytime you are launching, and this is for all of us listening, anytime we're launching new features or new products, um, you know, there's going to be feedback that comes in that's positive and that's negative, And it's about persevering through that and really knowing how to prioritize and yeah. categorize that input yeah. uh, and use it. Is that right? That was really beautifully said. Yes. Prioritize and categorize the feedback. Yeah. No, thank you. I think the one of the things that and this may be a pivot, so let me know, but I think is really, really important is as a product manager. I remember the early days of growth. We were like, what do we think people are going to want? And we like went in a room and just sort of brainstormed. And I, it was the throwing spaghetti at the wall period of my product management career. It's like, oh, this sounds fun, you know. And we were at the time college students building a product for college students. So in some ways that worked. It's like, this is a feature I would like on Facebook. I'd like to be able to upload photo albums and I'd like to be able to comment and like other people's photos. But as we've grown and, you know, there's so many different people that use our products now and we have many different products like we talked about. I remember the first time that like my grandma got on Facebook. It was like she's a totally different person with a totally different um you know jobs to be hired. I think she's using our apps for many different reasons. It's really really important that we look at how people are using our products and learn from that. And that's what I would call a data driven product driven sort of development cycle. That's that's what I think our approach has been. And that is what I think has made us very successful. When I say data driven, I don't just mean quantitative data. Yes, we should be like logging things. Everything's a funnel. How many people are coming in? How many people are coming out? What are they doing when they're on the website? But also qualitative data, like we talked about looking at people's comments, having focus groups, doing user research. All of this is so important because sometimes I go around saying like, why guess when you can know? A lot of times the answers are already there. And another thing that I like to point out is when we do this understand process, when we look at the data, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. There are often times when products are taking off in certain countries or different communities or whatever demographics. And we can really look at how is that working? What are what are teens doing these days or what's happening with Line or Kakao Talk in some of the Asian countries? Um, 
it, it is, you know, it, it's just not evenly distributed. And so there's a lot that we can learn from what we can see um, in terms of adoption and usage of our products, but also in the industry in general. Absolutely. It's it's um, falling down this path and it's a bit of a, a step to the right. But one of the things that you and I have talked about is the sense of diversity and inclusion in building products. And especially for someone like Facebook, Meta, oops, Meta, you have right? 3 billion users around the world. Like that is a global, that's building globally. Um, and it's understanding your users globally. It's understanding your markets uh, globally, uh, but also locally. Um, and it influences, if you do it right, it influences the way you build your product. It influences the problems, spaces you choose to focus on, how you market them, everything, right? I know this is a, a, an area of shared passion. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, what your recommendations are to people who want to learn from what you guys have done well, learn from things that you maybe ha- have learned how to do better, right? Uh, just talk to us a bit about that. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. We build products for the diversity of 3 billion people. In order to do that well, our team needs to reflect the diversity of the people who are using our products. So that's why it's critical that, you know, Teams are diverse. One thing that I would say is one one way that I I think we sort of pioneered this like data driven, product driven, product development cycle is that it's not just product managers or it's not just engineers. We have a very cross functional what we call circle of people that all contribute to building products. That includes PMs, engineers, but also designers, data analysts, local people in region. We have researchers. It takes a very cross-functional team to build something. I think there's sort of this misunderstanding or misconception that engineers are sort of just creating things. No, it's like a huge group of legal policy comms cross-functional. And sometimes when I talk about being a PM, I talk about um, being the conductor of a, an orchestra. There's so many different musicians in your orchestra that are playing so many different instruments. And what you need to do is get them to play together sort of beautifully. And so that that's one thing. The other thing that I think we have a lot of that I'm particularly personally focused on that I, I think we have and haven't done well so far is just the community of women in product is um, it's a small one. And I really want that to be bigger. We've had um, women who have been in our product program and they've gone on to actually be CEOs of other companies. And I actually think that's a great thing. Um, I, I think that's great actually, but I would also like our, your, our group of, of women at Meta to also be larger and also take, you know, huge roles at Meta. I think the most important thing that we're doing in order to improve this is really just like getting out there. I mean, this is one reason that I'm doing this podcast. And you mentioned that you saw me talking at the women in product thing. I think it's really important to be involved in the women in product community. Also show that I'm the head of product. I'm a woman. I look pretty different than other, you know, um, product managers just by the fact that I am a woman. I am not technical. I don't have a technical computer science engineering degree and Yet at the same time, I'm still able to run the product management function or, or be the, the leader of that function at, at Meta. And I think just these examples like you, like me, um, are really important in showing other people. I think that um, you can you can be in product and be a woman and be non-technical. 
Yeah, I think that's something, I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on, but I, I shared with you, I was meeting with a woman today who um, was actually trying to decide whether she should try to go after a product role. And her hesitation, her greatest hesitation was despite having actually a phenomenal experience from a program management thinking, well, I don't have the technical background, so am I qualified? And I think everyone who's listening needs to hear that's bullshit. Excuse me. But like you can, you can come into a product role. It's all about how you enter it and what the product role is, right? But not every product role needs to have uh, a tech background at all. Yeah. And I think you and I are both examples of people who have come in without a product background and have gone on to lead product teams and product strategy. And so if you're hearing that uh, today and it changes your focus, you can reach out to me. It sounds like you could reach out to Naomi and you could talk with either of us about how that doesn't need to be a barrier. Looking for the best ways to expand your knowledge on all things product-led? Our certifications are designed to help you become a certified PM, drive product-led growth, and fast-track your PM career. We offer everything from in-depth certifications that cover the fundamentals of PLG to short three-hour courses that dive into the essential elements of being a PM. These courses look at metrics, ops, onboarding, and everything in between. We also have certifications aimed at leaders who want to take their product teams to the next level. We're trusted by the largest companies in the world to train their teams, and we offer firsthand insights and teachings from leading experts. Join today and become a product pro others will only dream of. Now, back to the episode. I do think that it would be great for people to learn from you and your experience. So I know um, when we were prepping, you know, at one point when you first came into Facebook, you were sitting on a floor with the marketing and the non-consumer scientists, and you had an ambition to get onto the other floor where Mark and, you know, more of the consumers, uh, excuse me, the CS background and engineers were. Um, take us back to baby Naomi uh, and her mindset. What was happening? How did, how did you make the jump? Great question. So at the time, Facebook was, you know, the first Facebook office was actually 471 Emerson. It really was above this Chinese restaurant. Um, it was everybody in one room. Mark was still coding. I was one of the few people not committing code on my computer. Um, and then we moved right across the street <laughs> to a larger office that was basically instead of one room, it had two floors. On the top floor was sort of the business side of the house. It was people like me. I'd come in. I'd originally interviewed to be Sean Parker's personal assistant. Um, and then I ended up working in marketing, marketing, finance, legal, policy, comms. These were the people on the, the top floor. And on the, the bottom floor was all of the engineers. You know, I really wanted to be a product manager. I think I didn't even know what it was, but I wanted to move from the third floor to the product floor because that's the second floor, because that's how I felt I could just sort of be closer to building products. Like I was really excited about what they were doing. I knew I couldn't code myself. How can I be sort of like a conductor in the orchestra of people that are building these products? I want to, I want to, I want to be involved in that way. And so what I did was just every day go downstairs. take the stairs down and see if they were working on anything that I could be helpful with. One of the first projects that I worked on was actually helping to allow high school students on Meta. At the time you had to have a .edu college email address. One of my first, my first projects was, okay, how do we let high school students on this site? And I think a lot of really fundamental decisions were made. We decided not to create a separate site called Facebook High. We decided we're going to have one Facebook network. Everyone's going to be connected on that network, which at the time also wasn't a given. We could have had like Facebook College, Facebook High School, Facebook Germany, Facebook, you know, um, teens, whatever, whatever. We, we decided, no, this is going to be one global network. Yes. And so I started helping out with that. And 
over time, you know, I started helping out with other projects similar to I mentioned we were college students building a college site. We didn't have a new user experience. I just learned how to use Facebook by, like, looking at the person sitting next to me on their laptop. I worked on building a new user experience. Step one, upload your profile picture. Step two, connect with people that you know. These are things my grandma didn't intuitively know how to do when she joined Facebook. Um, and I think that, you know, just by virtue of, of adding value and, and helping um, out informally, I formally applied to be a product manager. And I remember the day that I actually got the job. I walked down with my box of all my stuff, like my my laptop, my keyboard, my notebooks, and walked down to um, from the top floor to the, the bottom floor. And when I came down, Boz, who's actually our CTO, was leading the entire floor of engineers in a standing ovation. And I think that's really important because I started to cry. I mean, it was like, it was so amazing that it was an opportunity to, you know, prove that PMs can add value. I think this also wasn't necessarily a given back in the day. I think sometimes you had engineers who were just like, what are you doing here? And why are you slowing me down? A lot of like, are you creating process? Um, you don't have to code. What, what, what value are you adding? Um, and also that I myself personally could contribute and add value as a product manager. And, and I think ever since then, you know, we have back then, I think it was one of the first product managers. Now we have almost 2000 product managers at Meta, um, adding a ton of value. Um, and I sort of have now taken the role of being able to be sort of spiritual guru for this function <laughs> because I believe in it and care about it so much. I love that. Um, when you think back to those those first projects before you formally applied, what what were the skills or what was the skill that was coming through from you at that time that was going to be a good sign that you would be a great product leader? Like, what, can you objectively think about that? Yeah, and and I think that these are the same skills that I look for today when I'm hiring product managers or like what I see in the best PMs. One is someone who wants to do sort of what's best for the company. I think a lot of times um, we're in the position of having to negotiate between a lot of potentially like different teams, local incentives. We do a lot of the cross-functional work. And so your North Star really has to be doing what's best for Meta, best for the mission, best for the, you know, the bigger picture. Second thing is simplifiers. Um, I have noticed is a very rare skill among people. I think PMs have an opportunity to come into a really complex situation and break it down into a way that everybody can understand, not just some people can understand. You know, sometimes I'm not on the same page as like, you know, an engineer really understands all of the details in order to communicate across different functions and across different teams. We need to be able to communicate clearly and simply. And I think they need to, I mean, and and this is something that I personally really care about. I think there's a lot of power in being willing to do whatever it takes. Sometimes we look down on, you know, some of the execution work that we do, whether that's project management, program management, like setting up meetings, following up on tasks. Like in contrast, I think there's a lot of power and leverage in being able to do that. Execution really matters. Before earlier, you talked about strategy. I believe in perfect execution because if you don't perfectly execute on the strategy, you don't know if it was right or wrong. PMs are responsible for perfect execution. And sometimes that means like, you're doing some of the busy work. You're making the PowerPoint decks. You are like scheduling the meetings. You are like, you know, chasing down tasks. And 
I know that sometimes that doesn't seem like the big, broader, visionary product strategy work. I, I would say it's equally important. Absolutely. Uh, I often tell people that if there was an emoji for a product manager, and it's certainly true for me, it's an octopus because you're you're yes. managing so many things at <laughs> once, and, <laughs> and it's all your responsibility. It's all your responsibility. So I think that's really good advice for anyone who feels like, oh gosh, this isn't what I thought I was doing. Actually, it is. Uh, and it you're is. right; it's a great way to think about it. Like, it, you are responsible for execution. If you don't do it well, then how can you how can you say from a data-driven perspective one way or another, whether the strategy was right. So, yeah, that's a great a great counter for anyone who catches themselves on a end-of-day Friday thinking, oh, why am I doing this PowerPoint? Well, that's because it's part of your job. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, okay, cool. Well, I think that that gives people a lot of clarity, hopefully, around kind of some of the skills that have been helpful for you, but also why it shouldn't be a blocker if you don't have technology as your background, but you do have one, two, three of those things that you've just listed off, right? Yes. And they didn't get there. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Sorry, the one other thing that I would say, we talked about um, being a simplifier. We talked about being willing to, you know, attitude, being willing to do whatever it takes, including execution. We talked about wanting, you know, being oriented on what's best for the company. Another thing that I have seen is um, low ego. To your point about having to work with a lot of different people and a lot of different teams, I mean, you work with a whole cast of characters. Some people are easy. Some people are difficult. Some people are, you know, I think being the conductor of an orchestra is really, really tough. And the one analogy that I would say with the, the conductor is you're not the star, of the star of the show. It's not about you as the product manager. I think sometimes people see, you know, I want to be the PM so I can be the face of everything so I can be like the CEO. You are successful if your team is successful. And when I call that is like the, the orchestra is playing beautiful music. That's when you're successful, not if like the spotlight's on you. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's, it's another thing it does is it goes even wider than the team because you're right in terms of the success, but it's also the idea of stakeholder management and how important it is to manage all the stakeholders and understanding what success is and keeping them involved. And we all know that stakeholder management can be incredibly challenging. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any, um, any lessons that you wish you would have known earlier, uh, regarding either the concept of it's not about you, it's about the team, um, or stakeholder management, things that you, if only you had known this, you know, five years, 10 years ago, you would have been more effective? Yes. The biggest lesson I think I learned is this happened when I made the, the the transition from an individual contributor to a manager is that like, if I really zoomed out and asked myself, what is the most leveraged, most impactful thing that I can do to help the company? It's not by doing everything myself. That is, that is, capped. There's a ceiling there. I'm just one person. Um, for seven years, I was the only PM on growth. And when I, when I talk about growth, what I'm talking about is sort of removing barriers that are preventing people from joining. I talked about, you know, allowing high school students. And then we allowed like anyone with any email address, like my grandma. Um, we've worked on projects like translating the site into different languages. So people who don't speak English can use Meta. Not everyone has like an iPhone. Sometimes people are using like you know, lower end devices, feature phones. I used to have like a flip, <laughs> flip phone. They're not always on like high speed internet. How do we develop experiences for those people? Sometimes people can't afford a data plan. How do we make access to 
to Facebook free. These are the kinds of things that I was thinking about as the only PM on growth. That's a lot of stuff to think about. And I thought that sort of job security and it came from me being like a single point of failure almost. I, I think in some ways I was probably being a bit territorial <laughs> about like I get to product manage that and I'm the only growth PM. Like I said, now we have 2000 PMs working at um, Meta and it really took me time to realize actually the best thing that I can do to help growth, the best thing that I can do to help the, the company is build an incredible team of people. And there might actually be someone who can work on various aspects of this, like the the experience on feature phones way better than I, you know, and, and let's hire a person who, you know, lives in India that, you know, uses feature phones every day and can see the pain points that people are having around using it. And so it took me a while to really accept and real, realize that um, that I needed to, in order to scale, I really needed to hire like an amazing team. And that was the best way that I can contribute a lot. You know, these days, a lot of the work that I do is really managing managers who manage, who are, you know, and, and so, so much about my work now is really about making them successful. Obviously, I still have a few projects that I'm, I'm very deeply involved in, but I'm, I'm finding that, you know, the leaders that I have in place, helping them with the like 5% of things that they need help with is really the most important thing that I can do rather than doing 100% myself. Yeah, I think there's there's two really poignant things there. Um, one is something you're saying it in a different way, but um, a, a former guest, a recent guest uh, who came on, uh, Vibor from Shopify, he he called out how important and how often people, leaders in particular, don't realize that by not hiring faster, smarter people under you, how detrimental it is to your own success, but more importantly to the growth of the business, right? Um, and so it's something that I think really resonated we heard from a lot of listeners like, yes, gosh, I wish I would have learned that sooner. Um, so there's that. And then there's something that I've always thought is a really simple metaphor for what you're saying about your job um, as a manager and as a leader. And it's that you can be the greatest firefighter in the world, but you're never going to fight as many fires as if you create 10 more great firefighters who create 10 more great firefighters, right? Like that's going to have much more impact than you with your big hose, right? So. Exactly. I love that metaphor. And I also feel lucky that um, to your point about the best thing you can do for the business, but also the best thing that you can do for your career. We, we actively try to recognize people that, you know, contribute by making other people better. You shouldn't have to like that. Like that should be a value that we have that we recognize managers for is like how strong their teams are. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. Well, we're getting to that point in the show where I get to ask one of my favorite questions. Although all the questions today have been great, um, but my question is to you about if there was a museum that was dedicated to the world's most important products, um, not the most successful, the most important products. What do you think should be in that museum, and why? Well, there are two things that I'm really passionate about um, personally. Um, the first is um, animals. <laughs> um, we were talking about our dogs earlier, but I really care about the treatment and um, of, of animals. And I feel like something that we'll potentially look back on in in a few decades is just sort of how animals are treated in in terms of the food industrial complex and one thing that I'm really excited about is not just 
replacing animal meat with plant-based meat that tastes like, you know, a hamburger. I think everyone, I was sort of early in the conversation around Beyond and Impossible Burger when it really actually seemed impossible. It's like, who is going to eat this? And now it's at, you know, Burger King and McDonald's. We we always have plant-based options, which I think is really great. There are some people that should continue to eat meat. I eat meat as well. Um, and I don't want to eat plant-based meat that's sort of moonlighting as meat. And so one thing I'm excited about for those people who who want to continue eating real meat is what we're calling synthetic meat, which is just meat that is grown in a Petri dish with stem cells from animals. But no animal has been harmed in the treatment, in the the creation of this meat. And um, a friend of mine is now working at a company that is really focused on how can we make chicken breasts in Petri dishes? And it just takes a small starter of stem cells from chicken in order to generate this. Um, obviously, I think this is, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years away to get to a place where it really satisfies the needs of people and it gets to a a cost that is affordable. You know, I think right now it's very expensive to create a, a steak <laughs> in a Petri dish, but I think like most technology trends, this will become cheaper and easier and more accessible over time. Um, the other thing that I am also really grateful for and um, that I think has had huge impact um, on me personally and more broadly as well is fertility treatments. I think in the future, much like with um, synthetic meat, it will be a lot more cost effective for women who want to, to be able to freeze their eggs. This is a, a perk or a benefit that we offer at Meta. And I just think it's it's really awesome to be able to have more choice and optionality around when you want to have a family and not be so worried about um, sort of the time and the biological clock. I think there's just a lot of empowerment for women in being able to have that kind of control or an options um, around, around having children. And um, so I, I think that I hope more people will have access to that um, option as well over time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, Melinda Gates's uh, moment of lift. Um, that was a great book for lots and lots of reasons, but it really, really, even as a woman who was making my own choices on whether or when to have children, it really hit home to me how big of an impact you would have if you just give women the ability to choose when they want to have those children. And that's obviously partially birth control, but it's also partially fertility planning, right? Birth control and fertility planning has been <laughs> life-changing, right? That's right. That's right. Well, Naomi, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And um, we look forward to watching both you and Meta continue to shine. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.